because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome back to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Uh, it's been a while. I'm not doing these shows on a regular schedule anymore, but sometimes there's an exciting opportunity and some information I really want to share with the listeners and viewers of the show. And today is one of those opportunities. Uh, I'm going to be discussing the new book by Senator Tom Cotton called Only the Strong. And the, the genesis of this is I met Senator Cotton a month or two ago when I was in DC. I visit DC fairly frequently these days uh, because I talk with a lot of elected officials about policy and messaging. And I really enjoy these conversations. You know, I'm not a, a lobbyist or anything like that. I don't have any financial connection with any of these people, uh, but I've gotten a reputation in DC as somebody who has a lot of insight in terms of what good energy policy is and what good energy messaging is. And so I got the opportunity to talk to Senator Cotton and I was impressed by how much he knew about energy and how interested he was in it. And he mentioned to me that he had a book coming out and then later he sent me a copy of the book and offered to come on the show if I was interested. So, so I read the book and it had a lot of good stuff on energy, but actually the thing I was most interested in was the way that it discussed foreign policy. I used to write about foreign policy. I'm very interested in it as a subject, but particularly just as an American who believes there are a lot of threats in the world that we're probably not dealing with very rationally right now. And as I was impressed, as I'll talk about in the interview, which I just did a little bit before this, uh, of how he really takes a principled and thoughtful approach to American foreign policy, and particularly uh, having a policy of self-interest, which I 100% support that idea, but I don't think most politicians really do, or even if they say they do, they really think through what that means. Uh, so I wanted to have him on the show and uh, talk about this, talk about energy, but more broadly talk about foreign policy and then energy in the context of foreign policy. So I think you'll really enjoy the interview. One note about the book, which I definitely recommend reading, is that there are a number of parts of the book that I disagree with or I think uh, about the issues substantially differently uh, from Senator Cotton. Uh, I told him in advance that I would uh, mention these at, uh, mainly at the end of the interview, just because I only had 45 minutes with him and to get into the areas where we disagreed, that would just take, I, I, I'm very happy disagreeing with people, but I just thought it would take a, a bunch of time and it was hard enough to get into the main thing. So some of the issues, and I'll mention these at the end and just discuss them a little bit, are have to do with uh, the nature of rights, uh, the issue of immigration, and the issue of free trade. So just keep that in mind. If there's something he says that you think, oh, Alex might really disagree with that, maybe, maybe I do, maybe I don't, but I'll talk about it at the end. So with that said, I think the, the issues he raises are really important. I think it's a very valuable book. Even where I disagree, I think he does it does a good job of making the case for the view that I disagree with. So I highly recommend getting this book and highly recommend listening to this interview. Enjoy. Senator Tom Cotton, welcome to Power Hour. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Uh, my pleasure. And thanks for sending me an advanced copy of Only the Strong and, and offering to come on, on the show. Um, so I just want to start out by saying to you what I think is extremely valuable about the book, which I'm guessing is related to your motivation, but probably not exactly the same, which is I think it's a, a thoughtful and a principled defense of a foreign policy of American self-interest uh, at a time where the lack of such a policy has really put us in peril to an extent that I think people are hugely ignoring, particularly in the case of, of China. 
And what I want to start off with is the foreign policy theory of your book, uh, because I think sometimes people expect that when something is written by an elected official, it's going to be super partisan, and, and you definitely have partisan preferences. Uh, but it really is a theoretical book, and that was like one of the things I liked most about it is it really goes into ideas versus just what political parties happen to do. And and you have, I would say, you can correct me, but I think of it as you have a policy of American self-interest, particularly focused on American freedom, and then you're contrasting it with these two policies that are very related of Wilsonianism and blame America first. So we're going to talk about these ideas in theory uh, and then in, in practice. But to start out, could you could you just summarize in broad strokes what these different policies are? Yeah, sure, Alex. So I think most Americans expect and they deserve a government that protects their interests abroad. Um, that's what their founders wanted our government to do. And that's right, explain and only the strong. Uh, we live in a very dangerous world. It always has been dangerous. It always will be dangerous. Um, ideology is not a guide for the conduct of American foreign policy. You have to be very clear-eyed and hard-nosed. You have to use practical reasoning about complicated circumstances. Sometimes policies may look different over time. What Ronald Reagan did in the 1980s may look different from what George Washington counseled or what John Quincy Adams counseled. But if you take account of all the circumstances, you see that it's still serving the same ultimate goals, fighting for the same principle. As a constitutional republic, our goals in foreign policy are the same as our goals here at home. That's to preserve the blessings of liberty, as the Constitution says. Well, what are those blessings? I think most Americans would define them as safety, freedom, and prosperity. They want to be safe. They want their, fr their freedom preserved. And they want to live in a prosperous country. Um, how does that relate directly to our interests? Well, you got to think about concretely, where is America? What is the unique way of life of our people? What's our history? What's our culture? What's our economy? We're a continental nation that's on the other side of the world for most of the world. Um, like any nation, our first and foremost interest is to protect a direct attack on our homeland. Some of the darkest days in America's history have been when we failed that, such on not, as 9-11 or Pearl Harbor or when the British invaded in the War of 1812. Our citizens also have uh, expectation that when they travel abroad, they can be protected as well. Millions of Americans are abroad. They should be able to travel unmolested without fear around the world. That's a second key interest. Another critical interest is our commerce. This gets to our prosperity. As a continental nation in the new world, we've always depended on open seas and then later open skies and trade with other nations. You can extend that principle today to things like the movement of data and information across undersea cables or satellites in space. And then finally uh, is our friends around the world. A again, as a nation on the other side of the world, we have to have a network of allies, partners, and friends who help us maintain a stable global order so no nation or coalition of nations can unite the seven-eighths of the world's population and the vast majority of its resources and key terrain in the old world to use against us here in America. That's exactly what, for instance, Japan and Germany tried to do in World War II, what Soviet Russia tried to do in the Cold War, what China would like to do to us today. So as the founders thought, you had to start from general principles about things like safety and freedom and prosperity, and then reason very carefully about them to get to specific interests and then how to advance those interests. And even that may change over time. As I explained in only the strong, you can look at our founders' approach to the Barbary pirates, sometimes paying ransom, 
sometimes going to war with them, but that was all guided by the circumstances and conditions at the time. That's exactly the kind of clear-eyed and hard-nosed foreign policy thinking that the American people expect and deserve today. Now, let me ask some more about that. So I think both you raised both elements there. You exhibited them. I think there's the principled commitment and then the thoughtful commitment. And I want to first sort of jump on the principled aspect, because I actually think it's quite rare for our elected officials to be principled in terms of America's self-interest. And I would include many conservatives as well as many liberals. And I think, you know, one thing you don't really go into, but I I thought about is I think a lot of the kind of neocon movement, and in particular, like when you look at, say, the motivation for going into Iraq, and I think it was called Iraq, you know, Operation Iraqi Freedom, there's there's sort of this blending together that you often see of, well, it's in our self-interest, but our real goal is to make Iraq, you know, a democracy. And one thing I really like about your book is you're constantly saying that the benefits to other countries are a means to protecting American freedom. And I think that's that's very, very unusual. And I think that's hard for people to say because it's sometimes people feel it's easier to say, oh, no, we're doing it for the world and then that'll benefit us versus we're doing it to protect us. And in many ways, that will benefit the world. Is, is that an accurate summary yeah, of your views? That's exactly right, Alex. When you're thinking about the conduct of American foreign policy, you have to put America first. That's what our founders would have done. I mean, who else is going to put America first if we don't do it? Uh, when Donald Trump was saying that on the campaign trail in 2015 and giving so many elites in Washington and New York the vapors, they didn't realize how detached that sounded to most normal Americans. They may not recall the, the history of the American first movement as a slogan in the 1930s and why that phrase fell into disuse after the 1930s. To them, America first just sounds like obvious common sense. And, and you can take it beyond matters of where you actually go to war when you think about just our alliances or our policy. Ronald Reagan always celebrated the solidarity movement in Poland, for instance. And he genuinely respected those Poles and those union leaders who were standing up to communist oppression in Poland. But he didn't do it because it was good for them, although it was. He did it because it was good for us. It was another point of pressure to put on Soviet Russia and international communism in an effort to ultimately consign it to the ash heap of history. This this relates to the well actually let me <laughs> let me do Pearl, since I know you've you when we met uh, you told me you had read Fossil Future which I was very excited about I, I noticed a parallel and I'm curious if it if it makes sense to you you know I talk a lot about in Fossil Future about you really need to be clear on what your goal and thus your standard of value is when you're thinking about what should energy policy be around the world or what's you know what's good for the world and I talk about how I think the standard in that context should be advancing human flourishing and how I think it's actually very rare that people think about energy in pro-human terms. They're often largely thinking about it in terms of this idea of eliminating our impact and we should be optimizing for the least human impact on earth possible, which contradicts that. And it strikes me there's a similar thing here where you're saying, no, the clear goal and standard is American interests and we judge everything by that. And if you sacrifice that, that means that you are sacrificing American lives and freedom in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, if you're not looking out for our own national interest, that means you're looking out for some kind of abstract ideology or advancing the social and economic and political well-being of other peoples. Now, again, a lot of what America has done in the world um, has the side effect of helping other nations. It improves their econo economic and political conditions. Look at what we've been able to achieve, for instance, in countries 
like South Korea and Japan and Taiwan as we help move them away from a tradition and history of military dictatorships or strongmen into vibrant free market economies. But we did that, again, not primarily because it was good for them. We did it because it was good for us to have those kind of strong, durable allies in the old world to make sure that countries like communist China or Soviet Russia weren't able to dominate all the resources and peoples of the old world to use against us here in the new world. That's always the lodestar of American foreign policy is what's in the interest of the American people and how in this particular set of circumstances can we best advance those interests. Again, sometimes the answers may look slightly different, but the policies are, are being guided by the same set of principles. Yeah, I think the idea of just having a clear standard is, is so, so valuable. And I, I really like how you talk about when you're talking about America's interests, you don't just say, oh, America's interests, and then move on to the next thing. You have a very detailed explanation of America's interests, which at least as I interpret it, all relates to American freedom, because even when you're talking about things like trade and prosperity, those are very, and you know, safety abroad, those are all related to freedom. This is, again, something I think is unusual even among conservatives, to really think about America's interests in a, in a what I would call a full context way, where you're really thinking through what does it mean to protect our freedom in the context of today's complex and dangerous world. And I'm, I'm wondering how much alignment you see with others, because I tend to see, you know, on one side, you often have the neocon types who just act like, well, everything that hurts anyone is in our interest, right? Uh, and this is kind of like with the environmental movement, it's like, Anything that affects any part of nature is in our interest to stop or something. This partial analogy there. Or on the other side, you have, I don't like the term isolationist because it's, it's a misleading term, but a kind of, let's just say a pacifism or a disengagement where it's, no, 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 let's just not do anything. Let's not get involved with Russia and Ukraine at all. Like, let's not do anything in the Middle East. Let's not, certainly let's not be in Asia. Why would we be in Asia? And whereas you really, for every one of the things that you thought were in our interest, like you gave detailed reasons. So I'm curious how alone you feel and, and what the prospects are for getting more people in this camp. Well, uh, certainly no one ever accused the Congress of, of being a hotbed of clear-eyed thinking in all cases. Um, it, you remind me of a moment on the Armed Services Committee early in the war on Ukraine in which a, a Democratic senator implied that while we should care about Ukraine and support them, we should also do as much about the civil war going on in Ethiopia and almost openly said that it was a result of American racism or white supremacy that we cared more about Ukraine than the civil war in Ethiopia. And I spoke to him afterwards. I said, I think you got it wrong. The American people uh, have a lot of common sense and they can understand that there's a big difference between a war of invasion across an international boundary and a civil war between a, a people within a country. Um, they saw the same difference, for instance, in the early 1990s when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and we sent half a million troops to eject him from Kuwait and protect the rest of the Middle East versus, say, the Balkan Wars in the early 1990s, which were vicious and brutal civil wars. Some liberals wanted to deploy American troops there, but of course we did not, nor should we have, um, because the American people understand that there is a different order of threat from a nation that will invade a smaller neighbor across international borders in a war of aggression versus a people that can't figure out how to stop killing itself. We might wish they would, we might take certain steps to try to facilitate peace, but the idea that we would commit American troops, uh, most Americans would think 
smacks of a kind of abstract idealism that does not advance our own interest. And it has nothing to do with race. It didn't in the 1990s when you were dealing with an Arab war of invasion and Europeans in a civil war. It doesn't today when you have a war of invasion in Europe and a civil war in an African nation. And I'd, I would add one idea here, which I think is consistent with your views, which is that, you know, American people on their own can do various things to help in international conflicts and may well want to. But, you know, when you're talking about the military, and I, I should have said earlier, you're somebody who's, you know, served very valiantly in our military. I mean, I, I have not. But when I think about people in the military, I think like the only reason you have any right to ask people in the military to be in harm's way is to protect the freedom of Americans including their own. As soon as it's, oh, I would like to see this civil war stop, but it's not like you go do that yourself. That's my view. If a citizen wants to deal with that and they can deal with it on a large scale and people do, but the idea of, oh, well, Tom Cotton or somebody else is going to have their life threatened because of something that doesn't relate to American freedom. I think that's that's immoral and it's, it's, yeah. it's not the right way to go about that. And I mean, we have a lot of sources of American power and I write about that in the only strong course our military power is the foundation of all of our power, but it's also the power that we would least like to employ. And as you say, we should only employ it when our vital interests are at stake. Um, so if you look at, for instance, as I write about the, the Battle of Mogadishu made famous by Black Hawk Down, which was preceded by an intervention in Mogadishu in the final days of George H.W. Bush's presidency, which then was transformed into a nation building mission by President Clinton. I, I have doubts about even what President Bush did at the time, but at least he did it with overwhelming force, a clear, definite uh, objective, and he was planning to withdraw promptly when it was achieved, as opposed to the open-ended and under-resourced mission that President Clinton undertook. That is, in a way, though, a failure of the other sources of American power to manage conflict, to maintain peace around the world through non-military means, which is what we should always aim to do so we don't have to commit our troops into combat. Yeah, it makes makes total sense. And I think this will resonate uh, with a lot of people who haven't really been given a principled and thoughtful approach to American uh, self-interest. I think what happens is people say, oh, you know, one side just says, hey, let's not do anything. And that seems wrong. But then the other side says, hey, let's go fix everything. And that also seems wrong. But uh, so I really like this approach. Now, one, one aspect that I have to talk about because it's power hour, uh, of America's interest has to do with energy. And, and when I got the opportunity to meet you a month or two ago, I was surprised about how interested you were in energy, how much you knew about energy to the point where you had actually read this book called Fossil Future, which is like 450 pages. Uh, so that's a non-trivial investment of time. How did, how did you come as somebody focused on foreign policy to be so interested in energy? Well, over the years, as I've you know read more history, which I think is the best guide for our present and our future, and thought more about the sources of American power, you realize just how central energy is. I mean, it literally is power. What do you call, we say when your lights go out, you say the power is out, power is back on. That's the way normal people think about it. Um, and as I write, not only the strong, um, the quality of life for Jesus's disciples and our founders was not all that much different, um, especially for common people. It was not really all that much different. Why wasn't it different? Why for 1700, 1800 years with standards of living the same. It's because we had the same sources of energy in Jesus' time and our founding. You had muscle, human muscle and animal muscle. You have water primarily in the form of, of currents moving on rivers, uh, wind primarily moving sails on ships on the oceans, and then sun primarily through allowing us to uh, grow crops. 
it wasn't until about the mid 18th century when you were able to put together the power of coal and turbines and then another 100 years later you add oil and gas and its byproducts to the equations 100 years later you had nuclear power that you see the vast increase in well-being and quality of living for ordinary normal people here in America and throughout most of the Western world. In a lot of the world, they still don't have those things, and you still see them living in standard standard of living that most Americans would think is unimaginable. So energy is central to our way of life. It literally powers our economy. That's why it has to be so central to our thinking about foreign policy as well. So how do you respond when people say things like, oh, no war for oil? They act like, well, energy, that's a terrible thing for our military to be concerned with. Well, no blood for oil is a left-wing slogan that suggests that we've been invading countries or going to war because we want to take their oil. That's not the case. But I think most Americans would say that when something is so essential and vital to their way of life, then yes, we should be willing to use force to defend it. That's been America, in America's core interest, as I write, not only the strong from the very beginning. Again, as a continental nation in the new world, we've always defended the freedom of the seas and subsequently uh, freedom of travel in the air and critical access to essential goods like sources of energy. Even someone as dovish as Jimmy Carter announced the so-called Carter Doctrine that said that we would resist with force if necessary any effort to monopolize Middle Eastern oil. Now, fortunately, we're not as reliant these days as we were in the 1970s on oil in the Middle East, but a lot of our friends and partners and therefore global prosperity is still dependent on that. That's one reason why energy policy has always been central to national security policy. It's certainly much more important to most Americans than deploying our troops around the world in, de in defense of abstractions or trying to improve the quality of life of other peoples as opposed to maintaining and improving our own quality of life in America. And I think this, this relates to another issue you talk about that I also talk about a lot, which is energy security. So I think that there, there's this idea of energy independence, or it's really some people think of it as energy isolation, where there's this idea that all of our energy will just be totally in America and nothing has to do with any other country. I think that's a very naive view, but we can produce a lot of energy in this country. We have so many resources and, you know, and a lot of ingenuity. And if you, it's what, what's one thing that's interesting is often the people who say, let's not go to war for energy uh, are against us fully developing our resources. So what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a sad irony that you see Joe Biden and some Democrats suggesting that we should go hat in hand to Venezuela or to Iran to produce more oil at the same time that they're throttling American oil and gas production here in America. Um, so energy independence uh, is is important because if you think about its opposite, it would be energy dependence, which is a slavish condition for a superpower, um, even for other countries like European nations who have been so dependent on Russian gas. Now, we'll never be independent in the sense that we are totally divorced from global energy markets, of course, but we truly can be the world's energy superpower, especially when it comes to oil and to natural gas, if we would simply unleash American energy, wouldn't it be a lot better for supplying not only our own energy needs, but for instance, liquefied natural gas to countries in Europe that had previously had to import it from Russia? I think American gas is better than Russian gas for our partners in Europe. Yeah, and one, one other 
thing that comes up in the book uh, a little bit is is just how many minerals we are not we have basically no control over and you know as i talk about a lot the entire green supply chain so called which is not just for green energy it's just for a lot of modern life is just totally controlled by china to the point where they could cut it off uh very easily and yet we like we continue to have all these anti development policies that basically basically make it impossible for us to be competitive. Do you think this should be a big priority of Congress to to change this? I I do think it's a priority, and I think there's a lot of parallels between uh, what's known as rare earth elements today and, and where oil has been for the last hundred and fifty years or so. These are vital commodities uh, for America's prosperity. Now, ironically, for something named rare earth elements, they're not actually all that rare. We have a lot of them in America. We have a lot of them in. Uh, North America and South America, what we don't have is mining and manufacturing and processing of them because we've largely outsourced that to China, which gives China a stranglehold on international markets. And I know there's a lot of attention right now on electric vehicles and their batteries, but it goes far beyond that. I mean, the computer devices on which we're recording this show right now or the tablet or the phone on which you may be watching it are all dependent on that Chinese supply chain. The simple fact of the matter is we are the world's dominant fossil fuel producer. We could be even more dominant uh, if we unleashed American energy. China is the world's dominant green or clean energy producer, not by any benefit of nature, but because we have allowed them through use of state subsidies and other unfair trade practices, in addition to our anti-development policies here in America to dominate that market. So anytime we hamstring fossil fuel production, anytime we go even further investing in so-called clean or green energy technology, we are making ourselves more dependent on communist China. So let, since this, the issue of China came up and you talk about it a lot and care about it a lot, and it is also the thing that scares me the most, let me ask you about how, like, let's say for the last 20, 30 years, how should we have treated China's status? Because my, my view is like, I love free trade, but I think you need to decide with nations, is this really a free nation? And if you have a nation that's trying to become the global superpower by 2049 and has hostile designs on us, I know giving most favored nation status seems, that seems insane to me that we've just done that indefinitely. But like, how should we treat a nation that possibly has designs on aggression? Because I feel like if we had given them the right status in addition to liberating development, we would be living in a totally different world right now. Yeah, our uh, our China policy going back 30 years is one of the worst strategic blunders in American history. Um, as I explained in Only the Strong, we have frequently worked with odious regimes, uh, most notably Soviet Russia, to defeat Nazi Germany. Of course, we immediately then confronted Soviet Russia. I, I believe that it was a masterstroke by Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger to have the opening to China in the 1970s to play them off against our number one enemy, Soviet Russia. But never forget, that was working with Mao Zedong, one of the worst butchers in the 20th century. And by the late 80s, certainly by the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, at a time when the uh, Warsaw Pact was crumbling and we could see the end approaching for Soviet Russia, we should have shifted our focus and we should have ensured that we did not fund the rise of an aggressive assertive anti-American Chinese regime. Um, when Bill Clinton took office, our trade with China was as small as our trade with some countries most of your viewers have never heard of. 
By the end of that time in office, it was up to 100 billion plus. By the end of Barack Obama's time in office, it was over 500 billion. That was funded almost entirely by leaders in our country, unfortunately, many Republicans as well, who had this kind of utopian idea that if we just brought market practices into China, it would turn them into some kind of liberal democracy, as opposed to simply supercharge their economic development and therefore their political and military rise. So it was a grave mistake, in my opinion, not to take a firmer line on China after Tiananmen Square massacre. It was an even worse mistake by Bill Clinton to eliminate the annual votes on most favored nation status, to give China permanent most favored nation status, and then admit them to the WTO. That really created, in the first decade or so of this century, what we call the China shock, when we lost millions and millions of jobs to China, uh, tens of thousands of factories, and you saw China's economy get supercharged. We'd begun to turn that around a little bit, but as I write, not only the strong, there's so much more to do to have a strategic decoupling from China uh, and America's economy. So we are no longer beholden to Chinese communists for so many vital, vital goods for our prosperity, our safety, our health. And I guess there has been some progress, but it seems like we're really far away because, you know, you talk about the China lobby and your own experiences, even with people trying to influence you via China. And you just think it's just it seems to all come down to you're not thinking about our self-interest, not you, but the, the, the politicians in general are not thinking about our self-interest in a principled way, because if you did that, you would see there's a there's a real threat here. And we can't just treat it like Singapore or Japan or South Korea. Well, there's whom I love trading. I mean, there's the, some people I think there, there's some people I think who are, who are still kind of uh, enthralled to this idea that, that China could somehow become a peaceful constitutional democracy if we just traded more with them. But let's be honest, a lot of this is about money. Wall Street banks want to do business in China. Hollywood wants access to Chinese markets and Chinese capital. Silicon Valley wants access to their consumer market. Um, so many of our countries now produce goods there, they sell back in the United States. This China lobby, as I describe in one of the strong truly is pervasive and it manifests itself in unusual ways. I mean, remember when the Houston Rockets general manager merely retweeted someone who expressed support for Hong Kong protesters and LeBron James landed on him like a ton of bricks. Why? Because the NBA's biggest foreign market is China and LeBron James envisions himself as a movie mogul and superstar who wants access to Chinese markets. I've got legion of stories about university presidents, even boarding school headmasters coming to Congress lobbying for a softer position on China because they depend so much on full freight tuition paying Chinese nationals. This China lobby is pervasive. One thing I want to do with only the strong is expose it to the American people so they're aware of efforts to influence American politics by the Chinese communists. Yeah, and that, that part of the book is, is a wake-up call. I knew some of it, but I didn't know uh, the extent of it. So I, I like we've discussed a lot about what it means to have a proper uh, principled, thoughtful policy of American self-interest. Now let's talk about the contrasting ideas. Now you talk about think Wilsonianism and blame America first. So could you give an overview of these approaches? Sure. So Woodrow Wilson was the probably the most ideological president we've had, or at least the most uh, ideological president along with Barack Obama we've had. He was a college professor. He explicitly repudiated the American founding. Um, progressivism is, is built in no small part on kind of German 
Romanticism, especially the works uh, of Hegel and the idea that uh, we, there's uh, historical evolutionary processes at work in mankind, as opposed to the history that, say, Thucydides and others would have said that history is really the work of recording the events that happen here and there based on human choices. So the progressives explicitly repudiated the, found, the moral foundations uh, of the American founding. As I explained in only the strong, that the founders based our government on human nature. You know, James Madison writes in The Federalist, what is government but the greatest reflection of all on human nature? And what is our nature? Well, first, our nature, according to the founders, is that we are created equal in the eyes of God, the laws of nature, nature's God, and that we have equal rights. No one has a right to rule another without his consent. A second aspect of our nature is that it is fallen and sinful. And while our form of government uh, requires and presupposes the highest degree of virtue of any form of government, the very fact that we have locks on doors or that we have to have contracts in business, that we have police and that we have militaries also recognizes that humanity is capable of great crimes as the annals of history are filled with. Therefore, we have a government that is uh, cabins and controls power through things like separation of powers, checks and balances, federalism, regular elections, and so forth. Well, to the progressives, this is all so much nonsense. There was no such thing as a fixed, unchanging, eternal human nature. Humans would evolve through historical processes. We would become better. At home, which is where the progressives focus most of their efforts, we could uh, outsource policymaking away from elected officials and get put it in the hands of supposed neutral, nonpartisan, scientific, expert bureaucrats. That's where you get the vast administrative state we have today. And abroad, it meant we no longer had to be so worried about war and the depredations of, of dictators or violent mobs or what have you, because again, we're moving towards the end of history in which we could restore humanity to the garden on this side of heaven. Um, that's why you see in Woodrow Wilson's war message to Congress about World War I, a fight for abstractions, for ideals, not talking about, say, the sinking of the Lusitania and the deaths of more than 100 Americans or conspiring with the Mexican government to try to seize American territory. Uh, these were all proper casus belli in the eyes of the founders against Germany. But Woodrow Wilson, like progressives still today often do, only wanted to employ American force in defense of abstract ideals or the well-being of other peoples, not the American people. And it's a strain of thought that started with the progressives and continues on to this day. You can see it, for instance, in what Bill Clinton did in Mogadishu or what Barack Obama did in Libya. Uh, the common theme, though, is that progressives will put in the, of this internationalist street, will use American force, but not to advance America's interest. They think that's too grubby, too selfish, uh, too self-centered. They want it to be kind of abstract and noble and ideal. Again, drawing back on the history uh, and sources of German romantic philosophy. And then what about the, the blame America first approach? Yeah, so as I explained in Only the Strong, when you repudiate America's moral basis, as the progressives did, it's not a very far step to repudiating America itself. So in the Vietnam era, you had the rise of what Jean Kirkpatrick, former Democrat, great ambassador to the United Nations under Ronald Reagan, herself a professor of international relations, called the Blame America First Democrats. They didn't just repudiate America's founding, they repudiated America itself. You know, they loved to write America with the K, uh, like in Germany, to liken it to Nazi Germany or, or fascism. And that's why you got hundreds of thousands of people dodging the draft, burning their draft cards, sympathizing with Ho Chi Minh, Jane Hapanda going to North Vietnam and manning the anti-aircraft guns. 
you still see the strain of thinking in our politics today as well, both at home, for instance, with the BLM writers tearing down statues of our heroes like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and U.S. Grant, but also abroad, that America is so corrupt, our past is so sinful, that not even using American power on behalf of abstract ideals or other peoples is sufficient, that American power should be dismantled. As you say, we should never do anything in the world. We certainly shouldn't use American power to advance America's interest. If you believe America is so fundamentally flawed and rotten to its core, why would you want to use American power? Why would you even want American to be America to be powerful? So these two strands of thought on the left continue to this day, and you see different politicians being kind of the avatars of each one, or sometimes uh, someone like Joe Biden might do the same thing in the same speech on the same topic as he's done talking about the Ukraine war over the last several months. So I've been thinking a lot about this issue and the relationship between these two and how they've progressed, or really I think of it as a, re a regression. And my, my thinking is they both seem to me to be forms of American servitude in one way or another, like the government is to serve the rest of the world versus to you know protect American freedom. And then the Wilsonianism is this proud and powerful servitude, like we're leading the world, we're going to use our power to do the right thing for the world. But then often when that happens, if the world will say, well, if you're really our servant, then we don't want you to just do what you want to do. You're like, you, you should do what we want. Like, you don't just get to do what you think is good for us. You need to do what we think is good. And so I think you get this more cowering, ashamed, weakening servitude where it's just like, we just bow to the will of the people. You certainly see this, I think, with a lot of the energy and climate stuff where it's just, oh, the world says this, we should do this. We shouldn't, it's, there's not an idea that, hey, maybe America could think about this in a more rational way than the rest of the world, which we certainly could because the rest of the world is thinking about it in an insane way. We could think, hey, maybe fossil fuels have crucial benefits. Maybe climate impacts aren't a catastrophe. Maybe we should leave. Like a Wilson could theoretically be open to that. But the modern strain is just like, let's just bow down. This is what the world does. And it's considered embarrassing when America doesn't do what the rest of the world is doing. Yeah. And they both contrast very sharply from what I lay out in Only the Strong, which you talk about in the energy context uh, in your books which is standing proudly for America's interests. And, and again, you know, because America is a constitutional republic, because we're dedicated to the dignity and the equality uh, of all mankind, standing strongly and proudly for our interest in the long run obviously helps the rest of the world too. Uh, one of the best examples of this I write about uh, in Only the Strong and from recent times is Barack Obama's decision to intervene military in, militarily in Libya, which was a mistake. Muammar Gaddafi was an eccentric megalomaniac dictator. Look, I, I don't shed any tears for Muammar Gaddafi. He had a lot of American blood on his hands over the years. But by 2011, he had become a de facto ally. He was scared straight by the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. He totally opened up his uh, weapons of mass destruction programs. Um, he allowed us to remove them. Um, he was cooperating with us on counterterrorism efforts. The Bush administration had lifted sanctions and removed Libya from the list of state sponsors. And by doing all those things, he had actually served as an example for how other rogue regimes might come in from the cold. But then along comes Barack Obama, guided by a lot of hawkish Wilsonian aides who saw uh, impending civil war in Libya and said, we have to intervene. We have to do something called uphold the R2P, the responsibility to protect, which is this abstract doctrine that we have 
a moral obligation to intervene militarily anywhere in the world when some peoples might be oppressed. I, look, I hate that. I know you hate that. But again, to commit American troops to protect them is a horse of a different color. And what happened is what so often happens when we put our interest subordinate to another nation's interest is the Libyan civil war went badly, badly off the rails. Barack Obama went for the exits within just a couple weeks. There still is no effective governance in Libya today. You've had arms flooding out of Libya into the rest of the Middle East. Human slavery has been reintroduced in some quarters. It kind of opened up uh, the entire continent of Africa to this ungoverned space right across the Mediterranean from Italy, which has helped contribute to the migrant crisis in Europe over the years. It's been a complete disaster, but it was all driven by this idea that we need to put some other countries and some other people's interests before our own interests, that we need, as you say, serve them before we serve our own interests. One final dynamic I want to talk about that I really found fascinating, because people might, and this relates to people might say, wait a second, you know, uh, Alex is, uh, the way I'm summarizing it is, you know, there's this idea of this proud, powerful servitude, and then this ashamed, weakening servitude. But I see politicians all the time, like Joe Biden and Barack Obama, they seem to take strong stands. And I think what, that my interpretation based on understanding from you is Americans want, Americans want a proud, powerful defender. We have a very visceral appeal there. And so what will happen is an Obama or Biden or some equivalent Republican will, they'll want to act tough in a given moment, but they don't have the philosophy to follow through. And so this, this, and because war is so difficult and these things are unpredictable, they don't follow through and it creates a disaster. Could, could you discuss this dynamic a little bit and maybe give an example? Yeah, I mean, I have an entire chapter where I write about when Democrats act tough. Um, and normally it is in that kind of hawkish Wilsonian strain that we're going to go to war on behalf of abstract ideals or the well-being of some other people. Um, what happened in Libya could be viewed as one example of it. Uh, maybe the classic example is the Bay of Pigs and John F. Kennedy. Um, Cuba has always been a key interest for American statesmen going back to our founding because it controls the sea lanes into the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean. It's only 90 miles from Florida, especially under modern conditions. It becomes, in effect, uh, an unsinkable battleship off the coast of our nation. That's what you saw in the Cuban Missile Crisis when Soviet Russia was going to put long-range missiles in Cuba that were capable of being armed with nuclear weapons. So all American statesmen have been concerned about political conditions in Cuba going back to our founding, and rightly so. When you had a Soviet-backed communist and Fidel Castro take over there, it was a grave threat to the United States. Eisenhower began planning with Cuban exiles for an operation that would topple the Castro regime. Kennedy had criticized Eisenhower and Nixon for letting Castro seize power in his famous inaugural when he asked not what you can or what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He singled out the peoples of Latin America have being harmed by Eisenhower and Nixon that he was going to stand for freedom with them. But when it got down to decision time, when the rubber hit the road, he simply was too weak, too indecisive, too hesitant and ambivalent about American power to actually go through with the operation. That's what resulted in the Bay of Pigs fiasco, which wasn't just terrible for the Cuban people and those exiles who were condemned to death or imprisonment. It's been plaguing American history now for 60 years because even though he was chesty about Cuba in the 1960 campaign, and even in his inaugural, when it got down to actually dealing with the vicissitudes 
of conducting American foreign policy, John F. Kennedy equivocated. In fact, that's what Raul Castro said, uh, Fidel Castro's brother who took uh, charge of Cuba um, years ago, whenever Fidel Castro became infirm, he was asked why the Bay of Pig failed. He said it could have succeeded, but Kennedy vacillated. That's kind of a story, often the case of democratic presidents when they do intervene militarily. They vacillate and America is weakened for it. And I would just tell people one of the big benefits of this book is you have so many stories about this and it's fascinating to look at recent American history and even some you know more distant events in American history, but through this self-interested lens. So I found it fascinating to see your analysis of, of Vietnam, to see your analysis of, of the Cold War. And it's really scary to me how when you have this, like you wanna be tough, but you don't really have the philosophy to do it, how much it ruins our reputation with others. The, I forget the exact expression, but the idea of, you know, you want like we're the best friend and the worst enemy. And, and in so many ways, we're not a great friend and we're not the worst enemy. And, and yeah. we really need to be both. Yeah, so I, I cite the famous maximum that the Roman general Sulla uh, had carved on his headstone um, before he died. Is that uh, no friend has done me a favor nor enemy an injury that I've not repaid in full. Um, that's actually a, a kind of source for the Marines' famous unofficial motto, which is no better friend, no worse foe. Um, unfortunately, as Henry Kissinger said, it, it can be dangerous to be America's enemy, but deadly to be America's ally, because in particular among progressive presidents like Jimmy Carter uh, and Barack Obama, we have a history of turning our back on American friends. Now, they might not have been good liberal Democrats, but let's not kid ourselves. The world's not a church picnic. You've got to take your friends where you can find them. And the question is not so much, is this country or is this ruler democratic or non-democratic, whether they're pro-American or anti-American. Uh, and we need to be clear-eyed again uh, about the countries that are pro-American and the countries that are anti-American. And frankly, if you look at the, the world's worst regimes, the ones that are worst to their own people, most aggressive uh, in the world, Think about who they are, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, Syria, Cuba. What do they all have in common? They're implacable American enemies. Whereas if you look at countries that are not democratic, but align themselves with America, that in itself is a kind of modernizing and liberalizing choice that often leads to positive change. Look at Ronald Reagan's steps, for instance, in the Philippines and in South Korea in the 1980s. He aligned with them. He worked with them to stop Soviet uh, communist encroachments, but he also gradually helped them midwife into stable market mar market economies and democracies. Um, in contrast, say, what happened with Iran after we withdrew for support from the Shah, or what happened uh, in Nicaragua after we withdrew support from the Somoza plan, what's happened in much of the Arab Spring under Barack Obama. We need to be clear-eyed about who our friends are and who our foes are. Final, hopefully quick question. I'm super impressed by how on top of things you seem to be. I mean, of course you can write a book and, and I know from experience, you can write a book and do a lot of research. And and but But you just seem to be really on top of current events. There are repeated anecdotes in the book where you talk about, oh, I saw this thing with the coronavirus or I saw this thing about China. And you seem to be spending huge amounts of time learning about it. Like, how do you stay so plugged in I, I was very impressed by that because I feel like I'm a good per, I'm a good thinker, but I don't have anywhere near that being plugged into the present that you do. Well, one, I try to stay grounded in our history, our history as a nation, our history, um, you know, going back uh, to the mists of recorded time, because 
key principle of our founding is that human nature doesn't change. You and I are no different from the men and the women who were alive and fighting in World War II or in the Civil War, or our founding, and who's no different from the people we read about in the Bible. We're all the same. There's nothing new under the sun. And the best guide to deal with the changing world and different circumstances is to understand um, how leaders of the past have dealt with their world and their circumstances. Now, as it's uh, in relation to today's circumstances, I, I try to just read as widely as I can. I, I read a lot of different news, especially on stuff that becomes very important very fast, like the coronavirus in January of 2020, when I was the first person in Washington to sound the alarm about what was happening in Wuhan. Um, once you start looking, fortunately, the internet has a lot of great sources of information that you couldn't have gotten 30 years ago, whether it's small social media accounts or local and regional newspapers translated into English from around the world. Um, obviously, my work on the Armed Services Committee and the Intelligence Committee gives me access to a lot of information, some of which is available openly, some of which is classified. Um, but I try to maintain uh, a real thorough, detailed knowledge about what's happening on the most important issues of the day, in part so I can conduct that kind of careful, deliberate reasoning that we talked about at the beginning. You have to understand the principles, the goals, the ends, but you also have, a, have to have a very strong grasp of the contemporary details to understand what you should do in any given situation. Well, uh, that's impressive. And I, I really hope the approach of the book, in addition to some of the detailed ideas, uh, becomes widespread. Anything else listeners should know about the book? I mean, it becomes available uh, next week as we're recording this. It's the 28th now, so this will be out in a couple of days. Anything else they should know besides uh, go get the book? Well, I hope they'll check out Only This Strong. Uh, as we talked about uh, today, it, it has a lot of uh, um, thought about the American founding, the American project, how we protect our interests. It also tells a lot of behind the scenes stories from my time in Congress and my time in the military, um, why things happen like the debacle in Afghanistan last year, or why it was the right thing to do to strike Qasem Soleimani. Um, what I was up to in my early days in, in the Senate when I was standing against Barack Obama's Iran nuclear deal, um, some of my interactions with President Trump. So in addition to the kind of theoretical grounding we've discussed and some of the historical analysis, there's a lot of new stories about my time in the military and the Congress that I think readers will find very interesting as well. For sure. Senator Cotton, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Alex. Thanks again to Senator Cotton for joining me, by the way. In case anyone is wondering where I am and why I'm not in my usual studio, uh, I am visiting Calgary for a speech and I'm staying at a friend's house and he, he has pretty good lighting. So I don't think I'm too backlit here, despite having a nice background. But if you guys prefer the regular studio, I will probably be there uh, next time. Anyway, so as I said, I think this is a super valuable book, uh, makes a lot of good points. All, all the things I mentioned in the lead up to the show and during the show just reemphasize that. So definitely recommend getting a copy of Only the Strong. As I said, if you're, if you're worried that it's going to be too partisan a book, I'd say mostly don't worry about that. It's, it's a very thoughtful book. Now, I mean, it's definitely this is a Republican senator. He's very focused on that you know, that party's success and he sees that party as the, you know, the agent of good and that's the kind of thing. So, um, that, but nevertheless, it is, it is definitely uh, worth reading whatever your political background. Okay. So I mentioned that there were certain things that I 
disagreed with or had a, a different way of thinking about it. And I'm not going to go into too much depth in these because these, these issues are not my professional focus. And part of them not being my professional focus is even when I'm confident about my positions, I am not nearly as confident as I am with energy issues that I can explain them very effectively. And I like in general talking about things where I not only am very clear about it myself, but have a very good way of explaining it to people who expect to disagree. And this is a very difficult skill, which I think people don't value enough. How They don't understand how difficult it is to explain things to people who expect to disagree. So what I'm going to do is just outline my views and then give you some recommended uh, content uh, on this. But I do think the issues are important enough where I wanted to make clear, hey, I, I think about this quite differently. So I put the three big issues as immigration, free trade, and the nature of rights. So immigration, the issue that comes up is it's it's a quite a significant focus in Senator Cotton's book in terms of threats uh, of illegal immigration and not having a secure border. And there, there's interest, there's a lot of debate about sort of how significant are the threats at our southern border compared to other things. Um, and I'm not an expert on that issue at all. I'll say in principle, yes, we should secure the board. We should have some sort of laws about immigration that protect us, and we should have policies that protect us against genuine threats entering the country. So you need processes around that. Where I definitely differ, though, is I think we should generally be very enthusiastic about immigration and greatly expand legal immigration. This is this is most obvious in the case of all of the incredibly skilled people who really want to live in this country. I mean, we could use so many more skilled people, particularly when we're talking about competitions with China and this kind of thing. Like we want America to have way more people and we certainly want all the smart, talented people we can get. And I know, you know, personally of many tragic stories and I'm sure you do as well, where people, it's just such a pain to get in this country. And I do not think that Republicans are, I mean, this is to put it mildly, nearly enthusiastic enough about facilitating legal uh, immigration. And, and I think the attitude needs to be different. Like even when you're talking about, okay, well, it's, you know, yeah, okay, okay yeah, you want a legal process, you want people to follow the process, but people who come here illegally, overwhelmingly, these are people who want a better life to live in a freer country. They want to work really hard. And this is something that we should uh, admire. Now, there are questions of things like how do you set up voting? And I think there should be higher standards. This is a huge issue, obviously, but for you know, voting and citizenship, that's not the same as whom you allowed to come in the country. I think particularly when you're talking about voting, you need to have high thresholds, you know, you need to think through that. Uh, but Nevertheless, the fundamental thing of it is a good thing for people to want to live in America. It's good for us to trade with those people. And I think we want to facilitate that more. And I think any pro-freedom political party should project that enthusiasm for um, immigrants and don't. So the fact of being hard on dangerous, uh, you know, quote, immigration, really invasion. Yeah, that's important. But there's there's too much on the Republican side of a uh, of a. Uh, you know, not not let's just put it as non-enthusiasm for more immigration. So that's that's one thing I wanted to distinguish. Uh, the other another thing I want to distinguish is the issue of free trade. And this comes up with China. It came up a little bit during our uh, interview. And I'll give you some resources for, for these in a second. Uh, but there's this issue of 
you know, do what do we do, you know, trade deals with China and have we been too free with China and this kind of thing. And it sometimes will get described as, you know, we've had too free trade or it was wide open trade and this kind of thing. I think the key is what I mentioned on during the interview is that you need to be very careful with how you designate countries in terms of to what extent are they an ally, to what extent are they an adversary or even an enemy. And then you need to treat, you need to take that really seriously throughout your government, including your economic dealings with people. So if you're saying, hey, I consider uh, China a threat in this way, Saudi Arabia a threat in this way, that should definitely, that should definitely shape how you deal with those, uh, you know, how you deal with those places. Um, but I think the key is, is getting that and figuring out, hey, what policy toward them is respecting rights, not having this general idea of, like we want stuff to be American. We don't want the other countries to become too successful. I think it can just, you need to be really, really clear on coming up with the relationship that makes the free trade truly free. Because part of free trade is it's, it's, it's trade that respects people's rights. So I think there needs to be more attention on properly designated country and not doing anything. After, once you do that, not doing quote unquote protectionist uh, things. Also domestically, Senator Cotton brings this up, but I want to give even more emphasis to it. The restrictions on development are a huge problem with respect to China. So they're an enormous problem in the sense of, and, and with just America in general, because we just have gutted our ability to produce so many valuable things that come from the ground in this country. And that really needs to be the focus. You're seeing with, with Congress, I, I won't, this is not on Senator Cotton, but with Congress, you're seeing the concern about China's rising dominance in different fields. And it's it's being met with these different protectionist things where or subsidies, and this is not gonna work at all. To, to strangle our economy with these so-called environmental regulations and then to subsidize these inefficient industries with taxpayer dollars, that's not how you wanna do it. You wanna liberate our industry, including liberate development. So from good, so for some good resources on these issues, um, check out my former employer and still a good ally of mine, the Ayn Rand Institute, where I, I used to work. Uh, Ayn Rand is, I think, incredibly underrated pro-freedom uh, philosopher, and I'll talk about her more in a second in, in the context of rights. But I think they, they generally have uh, views on this issue that are good. I know if you search them, I think there's a discussion about five years ago called the immigration debate with Ankar Gatte, who was a big mentor of mine and helped a lot with Fossil Future. Plus, Euron Brook uh, has also helped me quite a bit over the years and used to be my boss at the Iron Institute. So check them out. And they have some good stuff on free trade uh, as well. Okay, so the issue of, of rights. Now, this is a more philosophical issue, but it is a very philosophical book. And I wanted to bring it up. Uh, this, is a, this is a huge issue. But I would say that where I differ from Senator Cotton is the his his portrayal of rights definitely includes you know religious belief as an essential component of rights and i don't think that's true i think that there's a totally secular case for rights and i think there's a kind of argument that well the founding fathers were religious and they were religious or not to you know differing degrees but if you look at what the founding fathers what made them distinctive it wasn't that they were religious. There were many, many people who were religious before the founding fathers. And, you know, we talked about, Senator Cotton talked about, look, life hasn't, you know, didn't improve that much for the typical person, you know, since, you know, the year zero. 
and so, but those were years where there was a lot of religion, uh, including you know a lot of Christianity and Judaism and that kind of thing. Um, but we didn't have rights. I mean, you can talk. There are certain arguments about precursors, but really, you know, the idea of rights when that really emerged and became a political thing was you know the Enlightenment uh, in the era of the founding fathers. And really, one of the great things about the founding fathers was that they studied history. They st- studied, you know, human nature, history, what kinds of systems actually benefit individuals, actually function well. And I think that that if you look at, at their study and that kind of thing, they are really, they're engaged in something that is not essentially religious. They're looking at the nature of human beings, the nature of government and asking, hey, what does it take for, for this to go well, as I would put it, for individuals to flourish? And so I, I think it's important that people when people are religious and they believe like, hey, I believe in rights, but if you if you have a that view, but you say that but you say it's only available to people who have faith in the particular thing that I do, or there's some version of that argument, that's going to prevent that view from spreading. And I and I, more to the point, I don't think it's intellectually accurate. So if you want to understand like a secular argument for rights, highly, highly recommend Ayn Rand's essays. Uh, man's rights and the nature of government. And you get, I think those are the best secular arguments for rights. They're not the only ones, but I think they're the best ones. Uh, but I think that is that is a very important idea. And I, I don't accept the idea that being secular means being a collectivist. That doesn't make any sense at all. The fact that somebody doesn't have faith in a particular religion doesn't mean that they should adopt the incredibly irrational idea that individuals should sacrifice for the collective or in the case of energy, for the sake of an unimpacted planet. That doesn't make any sense. You think about uh, the nature of life and human nature and what actually leads to success and what doesn't, the individualism, freedom, pro-humanism makes uh, sense with no religious belief at all. So that is, uh, those are some controversial issues, but I wanted to bring them up because I do, uh, I do differ and I wanted people to be aware of that and be aware of some resources. So that said, Highly recommend those resources, but also getting the book Only the Strong by Senator Cotton. Thanks to Senator Cotton for coming on the show. Thanks to you for still being interested in the show. Just a couple of other quick updates. So Fossil Future came out earlier this year. I know I haven't been doing, I've been on other people's podcasts. I haven't done this one very much, but it's going really well. Sold a ton of copies, selling way, way better than Moral Case did. And Moral Case sold very well itself. It's it's great to see, you know, I'm seeing people in comedy, football, baseball, soccer, Hollywood, just all kinds of people getting interested in this and, and in some cases talking about it. We also unfortunately have a global energy crisis where people are aware of this. And the one positive of that is people are really much more open to the ideas of fossil futures. So please uh, make sure to check it out yourself. Please share it if you want to buy copies for others, or you, if you're a student, you can get a free copy. Just go to fossilfuture.com. That'll give you all the guidance you need on how to spread the word. And then, of course, I always mention energytalkingpoints.com because that is the resource uh, in terms of just easily spreading the truth about energy, very concise, powerful talking points that you can share with everyone. So as usual, if you want to contact me, questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstone.com. If you're interested in a speaking engagement, email speaking at alexepstone.com. And if you want some sort of uh, media appearance, email media at alexepstone.com. 
Thanks again to Senator Cotton for coming on the show to discuss his new book, Only the Strong. And thank you again for watching and listening. Not sure when I'll be back, uh, but it will be sometime. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.